Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our In Conversation event with Baz Luhrmann, director of the Oscar-nominated Elvis. Baz spoke to fellow director Ronaldo Marcus Green about directing an incredible performance from his leading man, Austin Butler, his writing process, and so much more. We hope you enjoy. Baz, thank you for making such a beautiful film. Um, thank you. One filmmaker to another, it's an incredible task what you took on, taking on someone's real life, um, to do it with such joy, um, such truth. Uh, it's amazing. So uh, congratulations to you, to your team, to your crew. What inspired you to take on the project? What about Elvis, mm. uh, the industry legend? What excited you about portraying this on screen? Well, I'll tell you as long as you answer that about Bob Marley in a minute, okay? <laughs> Um, actually, right, I, I mean, I had a little bit of fanhood when I was young, you know, more than a little, as I've done these therapy sessions, thank you very much, everyone, but um, I realized that I probably had more love for Elvis than I, than I imagined, but that was not the reason. I've always ascribed to the way someone like Shakespeare would take a historical figure, let's say Richard II or something, and explore a larger idea, you know, and that, that to me is like not so much biopic, but it's – I often refer to Amadeus as a good cinematic example in contemporary language where Schaffer, the playwright, who then goes on to – you know, there's a screenplay, but it's really well-researched about Mozart. And then you have Salieri. But what is that about? Is it about Mozart? I mean, you know, like – there's the preposterous conceit, you know, where Salieri says, oh, I'm going to get Mozart to write the Requiem. <laughs> That'll, you know, it'll kill him. No, well, why is he saying it? Because he's jealous. The film is about human jealousy. Why, God, did you put that genius inside that little pig when I did everything right, you know? And so drama ensues. And yet we learn about Mozart. Now, look, as a kid, I mean, I did kind of like Mozart. Although I preferred probably Beethoven, you do when you're younger, you know. Um, you know, it's like, you know, you roll up, but, you know, anyway, let's not get into classical music. But um, when I saw that film, I mean, you know, people who hated classical music, heck, Mozart, they just thought Mozart was a funny old guy. Whereas, in fact, he was a vital young artist living, breathing and creating. So I think that's really been my inspiration. I always thought Elvis, such a great canvas to explore these two big... Well, at first it was like, I want to explore 50s, 60s, 70s. But then I really wanted to explore these two big gestures. And they're the American gesture of, on the one hand, the soul, and that is the new. And for me, that's this country with layers of culture and it's a potpourri and it's kind of a big tangle, but new things are born out of it. And then the other thing is this other thing called the cell. You know, the big cell. And that's Colonel Tom Parker. You know, the, Elvis is the new and Parker is the cell. You know, never a Colonel, never a Tom, never a Parker, as I was saying. You probably know now why, right? You know. Well, it, it, I mean, it's not an easy task to take on a, a, a real-life story as someone as big as Elvis and to do it as, as elegantly as you did and with such visual style. I want to talk about directing because... You're one of the greatest living directors that there is. And 
you know, to it's it's incredible to see what you've done. I just want to talk about that because I, I think a lot of people don't know what directing really entails from casting to everything behind. So I'd like to just talk about the genesis from the from the moment you decided to take this on your creative crew. Who are the people you brought on to, to tell this story and what were some of the challenges that you might have faced um, while you did that? Well, it's funny you mentioned directing because that's let's say that's a director's chair although i never sit in a chair on a set but um it's a funny place to be isn't it right i mean funny meaning that no matter what in the end at times it's a lonely place to be but that loneliness i really try and keep it bay because i come from actually for all of the style i come from an acting teaching background and so I think in those days I really learned that the ensemble and the collaborative and the collective holding of a story in with a group of hands is really where you get great security from it. And so what might be different, I mean, I start living the films. I mean, I just live them. I mean, I was in coming and going from Memphis over two years. I had an office in Graceland for 18 months. I mean, you know, to me... I mean, I could do that forever and never make the movie, you know? Like, for example, you know that scene um, in the gospel tent and the little kids? I, it took me like a year to track that little boy down because I'd heard that he existed. And he was about 70. Very sadly, Sam Bell passed last year. But just the whole adventure of, oh, he's in Tupelo and we couldn't find him. And then I went with some of my junior guys and we drive down there and I'd send a FedEx and you know there was FedEx it was rainy and wet and you'd been there for weeks and my guy said what so we come all the way to Tupelo and you're not going to get out of the car and knock on the door and I don't know there's cobwebs knock on the door and you get to Sam Bell and he tells me that story verbatim I have the video he takes me to Green Street you know he steps me through that verbatim and I always think today, like if I never made the movie, I still think the privilege of having that man tell me his story and that, that I was able to hear it and participate in it, that, that to me is the great privilege of it. The next bit is making it. Now, to that point, I really involved everyone very early, always. I mean, I have, in fact, I kind of write three scripts, you know, the written word, the visual script, the musical script. And I have my collaborators there, like, with CM visually, you know, with um, whoever, you know, it'll be, it'll be like Elliot musically. And we're doing like workshops all the way through, all the way through. So I suppose for me, it starts as a little bit of a private adventure. Then I button someone on and I share what I've learned to them. But very quick, quickly, we're collectively sharing it to another group and another collaborator, another collaborator. And we're always making stuff. So it never feels like we're not making the movie, you know? Yeah, no, it's amazing. And could you talk about working with your wife and what that's like? Um, Should I do it? Should a, I not? A lot of, a lot of arguments in bathrooms. <laughs> um, Can you tell everybody who your wife is on the Yeah, Catherine Martin, right? She's got four Oscars, right? Few, a lot of BAFTAs. Um, she got a lot of awards. And the only reason she's not here is she's getting another award in Sydney. <laughs> How's that? She's getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. And just so you know that I'm not the uncaring husband, I'm getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning in the hotel here, putting on a tuxedo, and I'm going to be participating in a three-hour award show. So, you know, I'll be there, honey. Um, 
she's an awesome human being and a great artist in her own right. She actually, the, her great love is actually doing homewares and interior design. But um, we've worked together. I had theatre company, and her and a and a another young creative. I found them, and they started coming to work with me. And we've we have our way. Like I I do start with really bad collages. I'm the world's worst drawer. Um, she very kindly says, oh, darling, your sketches are so emotional. And what she's really saying is, even I can't read that scribble, right? Um, and I can't read my own writing, so you can imagine, right? I think people just prop me up a lot. But um, she has an unerring genius for execution. Now, what I mean about that, it's not that she's not without ideas. Like, we will, you take Elvis's costume. Like, I wear the clothes a lot. Like, I get into character kind of thing. Someone said to me, are you a method director, you know? <laughs> I said, only when it's Fitzgerald, you know, and exploring gin and tonics. But, um, it, which I went way too far with, I can tell you. Um, uh, but um, I'm serious about it. Like, I do wear the clothes. I do go and live in Graceland. I do want to feel what it was like to be in Green Street running through Shake Rag. But at some point, for example, working with Sam, we'll go, we'll, we start to do boards and then I do my collages, then she turns them into beautiful things. But clothing, for example, that pink suit, you know, in that beginning scene, all right? So we started building the pink suit. I would get on it and I would jump around a bit, you know, not that I dance, but I can sort of jump around a bit. So I jump around because it's not working. Like how, because famously what actually happens with Presley is that really did happen the way you saw it. It happened in a different location, but he does, he's so shy. And he goes on, he's wearing what you call peg pants. And he's so nervous and he's shaking. And the girls start reacting exactly like that. And in fact, the, the um, Marianne Kaiska, the woman who works for Sam, the, the record label owner, said, and I had to shush all the girls because they were making keening. Keening is not screaming. If you've ever seen BTS, you will hear keening, right? I have seen BTS at Cityfield. My ears were bleeding, you know? It's a very special kind of screaming, right? And I like loud. Um, and anyway, so, like, I get, you know, it wasn't working. How do we make the trousers and stuff work? So I would jump around in them. Now, we'll leave the trousers out of it because we weren't doing that bit, right? Um, that took a bit of technology later on. But what we found was that the 50 structure, the Lansky suit, didn't really work. And Sam, this is the brilliance of her. She went, it's a cardigan. That's the problem. It should be a cardigan. I said, what are you doing, Matt? She just stripped all the insides of it out and just left the two shoulder pads. So that when Austin moved or Elvis moved, you could see his movement within. You know what I mean? Like, so she's got this because she comes from such a profound um, history. Her father's a great academic. She understands, studied in the theatre, clothing. She's one of the great sewers. She could sew anything. So have I said enough about her? She's brilliant. I love her. I I, I need to talk about performance. I mean, Austin Butler is an, an, an remarkable in the movie, um, but an actor is as great as his director. And and you have you have Tom Hanks and you have Austin Butler, the 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 two extremes in terms of experience and and, and yeah. time that they've had to prepare. How do how do you work with that the, the, the those varying yeah. ages and levels on on a film set? Yeah. Well, it is definitely an ensemble. Like I wouldn't leave out, and I'll come to Austin and Tom because you're right. The narrative of this film, the backstage story of this film, is two of the total ends of the spectrum. A complete birth and discovery, really. And someone who is arguably the greatest actor, one of the greatest actors of all time, right? Who's, you know, you get on an airline and you flick through the movies and you, you flick through at least six or seven of them. You go like, oh, wait, 
Tom was in those. I forgot that. You know, I just didn't recognise him. Um, but there are also like Richard Roxburghs and actors that I've worked with for years. You know, I mean, the actor um, David Wenham, who's playing um, Hank Snow. I mean, he's Audrey in Moulin Rouge. You know, he just says that one line, "Goodbye." You know, so like, I love that. I, I always build a core of actors. But you're right. This film sits on the shoulders of two extraordinarily important roles. And the first one was Finding Elvis. And honestly, you know how I told you I love to research and kind of live it? I kind of had this slightly perverted thing in the back of my mind. Because, you know, I get funded to do this, so I don't have to worry about, you know, taking a few years. Uh, um, I just sort of thought, oh, don't worry, I'll never have to make it, because I'll never find anyone's going to be able to play Elvis. <laughs> It's kind of my dastardly <laughs> plot. And my workshop, you know, I think I think um, auditions are not good, you know? They're just not good. Does anyone here think auditions are good? If you do, okay, that's all right, I accept it. But I just think nobody wins in an audition, you know? So what I do is I run workshops. And the reason I do that is I I have an attitude that when anyone comes into a workshop with me, it's going to be a day. And I'm going to focus on not only getting them the role, but more importantly, learning something about the scene. So when they leave, we both went, oh, we actually improved something here. You know, we found something. And I'm not pretending to do it. You know, I'm go I've got some talented person in my space. I want to say, look at this text. What can we find out about it? And I actually found out that a lot of material was really flawed by working with different actors. However, there comes a day when I get this extraordinary tape and it's got a young guy on it and he's wrapped in a um, bathrobe and he's playing Unchained Melody. And my memory is, and he's just crying, like it's not crying, crying, acting crying. It's just so hard to look at and yet so compelling. The tape gets in my hand. I go, I don't know who this is. I've got to see him. Um, turns out that his agent had given it a producer friend of mine. And the long story and the short of that is that Austin had done a tape. He thought it was terrible. He had discovered in his process that Elvis had lost his mother in the same year that he had lost, Austin had lost his. And he had this reoccurring nightmare. And he thought, well, how can I use this? And he went downstairs and videoed himself singing to his mum, Unchained Melody. He did not know it was going to end the movie, you know? So it's, it was, yeah, it was a woe moment. And then he came in and he was pretty much down the... He's already started, you know, he's already... um had a sound and a look and a shape of Elvis. You know, he wasn't, he didn't walk in. Well, I mean, I think it was like two months later, I said to the guys, what part of the South is he from? And he said, he's actually from Anaheim, which is a suburb in Los Angeles, you know. So you can imagine he'd already grabbed with that. But it was only the workshop that just grew and grew and grew. And I just don't ever remember saying you've got the job. I mean, I must have at some point, but it just went on forever till we made the movie. Oh, well, the movie then never got shut down. Tom was different. You want to hear a quick yes, one about Tom? give me time. <laughs> Am I giving you too much? No, I love it. <laughs> You've seen my movies, you know. They're a bit hard to rank. Let me text them. <laughs> okay, okay. You know, you, know, you can cut it down and focus it, all right? You can, say, can get back over that and do it sort of quicker, faster, and cleaner. Okay. Uh, Hanks, I knew um, socially, right? Not much at all. As you know, as you know, you want an actor of that scale to play something they don't normally play or that is risky, it usually takes a journey. It's not like, you know, you send them a text. So 
it usually takes weeks and talking about it and, you know, and usually they want to see a script. Crazy, huh? (laughs) I blank out on that one. Uh, So I go to see Tom and I go, you know, Tom, how are you going? And I go and I tell him about Colonel Tom Parker. And I can see in his eyes, like the moment I'm talking about this sort of sort of toxic um, um, carnival barker who has this almost insane control over Elvis, I can see him sort of just button in. And I've got a video of Colonel Tom Parker, a little doco, it's going to last three minutes, and I've got my props, you know. And I'm pretty good at this sort of stuff, but I was really nervous because, you know, I just didn't know how he'd take He stops me 15 minutes and he goes, well... If you want me, I'm your guy. And I was like, I got my video like this. I go, like, you want to see the video? And he's like, well, not really. I mean, not really. I said, right. And it's funny because, like, went on, stuff went on. And I was working on the script. Working the script. I said, look, um, look, I really, I feel like, you know, there's a draft almost ready for you to see it. He says, well, only show me if you kind of, you know, feel like it's ready. You know, I don't think he saw it until he arrived in Australia, you know. He, I think he just absolutely went on instinct that he so wanted to play a character that his audience probably wouldn't like. And he went like, and you know what it is, you know, you know, like, Ray, you know what it is when you do what you do and I do what we, when we direct, for everyone here who does direction, if you work with great actors, once they've done something well, people want to see it again and again and again. And if an actor is an instrument, people want to hear the same tune, a little variation, same tune, the same note. There's nothing more enjoyable, I think, for a director than to help an actor find a new note on their instrument to play or help them play a new tune that they know they can do, but they are never given the opportunity. It's kind of thrilling to do that. So I think Tom was just like, he, he just kind of already probably, probably wikipedia Colonel Dunbar and we're like, oh, he's revolting, perfect. He probably, he probably just started before he walked in the room, you know. Don't sell yourself short. I think he probably saw that Baz Luhrmann was directing the movie. Well, I, I tell you what, though. I tell you what's so great about him, and you'll know something about this. He isn't just, like, committed. He comes on that set and he leads. He leads every actor. He keeps the spirits up. You know, he'd do a poster of one of Elvis's sort of 60s movies and it'd be called like Baz, Baz, Baz in, you know, Austin Rama and all these gags and make, like spirits. He never left the set. He would go, I'd be turning, uh, shooting in the casino and you'd turn around and be playing craps with, this, you know, support actors and stuff. So he told me, ready? He's like, oh, well. So he's just an incredible spirit. Great. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk about how you navigated the family, if you had to at all, yeah. um, what that relationship might have yeah. been like. Um, I can only imagine, you know, just emotionally what that must have been like to, it's a gift to tell someone else's story. Um, so can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Sure, right. I'm, I'm, I'm looking you in the eye and going, you know, because, you know, um, the one thing that you would already know is, like, if you're telling a story, if you're doing Richard II, you know, you're not going to be looking at someone in the eyes for whom Richard II is a father or a husband or a grandfather. Like, that emotional truth, they're living, I mean, they've passed, but the emotional truth within them, the relationship is very much alive and that completely changes everything. Now, having said that, Priscilla and Lisa Marie, they don't, they, they weren't dictating anything. I had complete control over what I wanted to do because authentic brands own the likeness of Elvis 
and they own and and actually I'm with RCA my label my record label and they own all of the masters because Colonel Tom Parker and his desperate need to get gambling money sold all of Elvis's music to RCA for almost nothing and I had the great privilege of being able to go in and hear Elvis tape just vocals of him doing like Bob Dylan and things no one's ever heard so I had all I needed having said that coming back to what you're going you will go through there's no way I'm going to make this film and not engage with Priscilla, which I did, or Lisa Marie, which I did. And it was really – Lisa Marie was great, actually. She was very like – I've never stood by anyone doing this, but I want you to know that I think if anyone can do it, probably I'm glad you're stepping in. So I don't know what that meant, but except it meant a lot to me. And then when I met with Priscilla, she was really helpful but a little bit guarded. And then the pandemic came. And we were estranged. Like, I got stuck in Australia. I couldn't communicate with them really in any substantive way. And Priscilla became really a bit vocal about, I don't know. And she met Austin, but she just went like, look. Uh, she was basically saying, I don't know how this skinny kid can play Elvis. Like, no one can. So um, I'm finishing the film. We're on the way to Cannes. I know, I'm, I'm, we're going to Cannes. And I need her to see it. I just think we've got to, I've got to show her. It's, you know, I can't get out of this anymore. And I don't think I've ever felt more nervous about a screening in my life. The plane was late and I ringed and, and there was a female security guard. Gail said to me, the female security guard's there, so she's crying. I said, why? And she said, because I said, Priscilla left. I said, no, no, because Priscilla's still in there. Like she's been in there 35 minutes after the movie and she's still crying. So then I get this incredible email, which I'll never forget, which I then read to Austin and he burst into tears and it said, look, can you imagine, I'm sorry I was hard on you. Can you imagine all my life having impersonators come up and curl their lip in my face, you know, to a man that defined my life, you know, was, and she said every, I don't really understand it actually. She said something like, I couldn't understand it, like, I was with Jerry Schilling and we were going every wink, every move, even the way Elvis got angry, which is not on record. She said, you know what, if my husband was here, he would say, hot damn, you are me. She said, I don't know who that boy is, but he has achieved the unimaginable. And from that moment on, we're in Bra And the same with Lisa Marie. She just said, oh, Lisa was separate screening. She said, it's all gone, it's all gone. And then they invited us all down to Graceland. And we had a barbecue and cocktails in the jungle room and the kids ran around playing billiards and we were like part of the family from that moment on. And it was an unbelievable moment. But up till then, while I was trying to serve the larger idea, why one has to be disciplined to say, well, what is the real story? You have this feeling that you just absolutely don't want to let them down, you know, because it's, as you said, it's someone who was a person to them, yeah. You you did an incredible job honoring um, honoring that. Um, talk about your director's cut. Is this your director's cut? Uh, <laughs> what's on the cutting room floor? Uh, you know how challenging was it to tell someone's life in, yeah. in two hours and forty minutes? And and you know what what was that process like for you? In the I mean, this is the thing. I'm very, despite all of the baroqueness of the films, I'm very process driven, and I as I say, you know. Actor, 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 text, 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 because I, I can throw anything at it. But if you do not have a true 
acting core that is really connected and in the same, telling the same story, you're throwing stuff at an abyss, you know. So I really focus on that and then the visual language, all of that. But then the three scripts I get into one. So I'm going in with a pretty strong plan. Having said that, I never stop writing. Like things occur to me on the set. I'll go into Tom each morning. He used to come and say, he'd go like, okay, he'd go like, okay, boss, what do you got for me this morning? <laughs> Knowing full well, I've probably rewritten the scene. Um, but tweaking and all that, because the actors, the actors are so, they've workshopped so much, they're so secure in it, that if I said, look, what, they just watch, you know, Tom was great expression was, you know, watch this, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh, watch this. He couldn't wait to show you, you know. So then I get to the end of it. Now, I, I did shoot out some sequences, like, for example, Mandy Walker, who, by the way, the DP, who won last night at the Technical Awards, first time a woman has ever won as a DP. Is that not, not right? <laughs> and including the BAFTAs and the Oscars, I have to say. All right? But I just love Mandy so much. And she's at the workshop when I discovered Austin. We were, she had a like around her. We had likers and we were shooting Finding Elvis's Angles that far back, way before the movie. Now, having said that, um, for example... She's so exigent that she built lenses that matched the exact... There was materials we had to match that were on YouTube, you know? So she built the lenses from the 50s from Lawrence of Arabia where we matched those. And then we had lenses that were anamorphic that matched the very famous... Uh, this, um, that's the way it is, Elvis documentary that we use a lot in the movie. So we built those things. For example, in the comeback special, we have our um, digital cameras inside the real floor cameras. So they're in exactly the right position. So we're doing all that. So take the concert in Vegas. We rehearsed it so much that well, the cameramen had to learn the music. They had to learn everything. So that we ran it from Elvis walking back on stage, copied the shots he went on, and he did the entire concert. Right? And Austin knows it so well. He was Elvis. It was kind of an out-of-body experience, actually. It was so out of the body that I have a grip that has worked for me for like 30 years, called Brett, you know, Grip. And he might have said eight words to me, you know, in like 30 years, like, you know. <laughs> like, something like, morning, boss, like, watch out, you'll get squashed. Um, and then at the end of this performance, he comes and he goes, oh, boss, can I say something? Hey, look, mate, I, oh, I've done the Star Wars, I've done the Thin Red Line with Terry Malick, um, you know, the Superman, I mean, I've done it all, but... Oh, I've never seen anything like that. I think I was shaking. I might have shook the camera. I said, it's all right, Brett. We're all shaking, you know. And he went, good, good, yeah. That was out there, you know. And it was. And it was. It was such an extraordinary thing to witness. So we shot those concerts right out. I have them. But as far as drama and that goes, there's not a lot more there. There's some sequences I did take out. And there was a kind of more expanded notion of the kernel and the more thing, but I just needed less and less. So... I think what you might be referring to is the now it will ne never leave me alone. My gosh, if you Google it on the press, the your freaking phone explodes, you know. Lerman's four-hour cut will be done, you know. His version does exist. No, it doesn't. It never did, you know. It's an assembly of style that kind of was around 350. And I think my big focus was exactly that. We had one mission. And we always kept it in our minds. I withdrew the film when they started putting all the movies on streaming. I said, I'm not doing it. 
And I said, unless you absolutely guarantee that we go into the theatres and I want a double extension of the time it's in the theatres. And they were like, okay. <laughs> How do I get that extension? <laughs> no, no, you'll get it <laughs> now. How do we just ask for that uh, extension? <laughs> Ray, I can tell you, you don't have to ask now. You know why? A weird anomaly of us going in and me doing that was that I forgot to ask them to stop VOD, which is video on demand. So their vi video on demand, while it was in the theatres, like tripled. So they went like, this is brilliant. We're going to do this from now on. They're going, I mean, work from one I guess. I mean, you know, that so they are going to, or, or with them, but they are very focused on the idea of how theatrical, I mean, certain films, theatrical. See, I made a theatrical movie, a movie for the theatre, and our focus was we had to get to make it work Older audiences in, which were not coming to the theatre, and younger audiences. And honestly, if there's anything gratifying about this whole journey, is for every single person that worked on it, is that this is the I, I think it's the highest grossing non-sequel movie in the theatres this year, and that's gratifying because that's it's about the theatre, you know. And then it's great that it goes to streaming, you know. So I think that's I'm going with Marley should be in the theatre. Yeah, <laughs> just as a side point. Think of the music. You know? Well, look, I mean, the ending of your movie is so um, incredibly powerful. Um, it's not easy to come up with an ending. There's so many movies that start great and just don't know where to, don't know where to end. Can you talk about your ending? Can you talk about when you knew that that was going to be the ending and how you came up with it? That's an interesting one. And it goes back to this thing of, you know, I said we start making the movie very early on. So my editors are on really early too, like, like literally from, I mean, they come and they go a little bit. But when I was workshopping casting, um, Maddie and Jonna, who also won the awards last night, the Tech Awards, um, who trained under Jill, who I started with with Strictly Ballroom, they were cutting very early on. And when I was showing, I wanted to get the guys, well, I have really good execs at, at WB, you know, worked with them for years. I wanted to get them to understand what we were doing because it was budget time, you know, how much is this going to cost, you know. And um, so I sort of did a little, it was like a bit like Steppenwolf, the theatre. I did a sort of reading of the treatment, but an orchestra, like a band and projections and materials. So it was kind of that, right? But we just read treatment, right? Weird, I know. But, um, but, I wanted them to see this footage of Elvis singing the last time he sings, which is just on VHS. And we did, but I thought, if we just show it, it'll be too depressing. Let's cut in some imagery of, of how he was before the body was corrupt. So what you see on that screen was actually cut, that last bit was cut two years before I made the movie. And that's sort of how instinctive I think that works. Now... Having said that, although authentic brands control the footage and the one piece of footage they did not want to put out there is that footage. They said, look, 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 you can do whatever you like, but that's not the Elvis we want to finish the movie with. I said, but don't you understand how emotional that is? Because the body is corrupt. He can barely stand up. But he sings maybe the best he ever sings in his life. And the moment that's incredible in that footage is when he's playing... And he smiles at the audience like this, like a little boy. He sort of goes, am I doing well? Do you like it? And we're all going like, yeah. And I think that addiction, it's still a little boy from Tupelo who thinks he's Captain Marvel Jr. and can solve the world with his magic. And he still wants affirmation and love. 
And I thought that, but after that, there's nothing. Like, that's kind of like where it is. And they were like, no, no, no. So I said, well, if you don't want to use the footage, I know Austin can do it. And I was thinking like, oh, my God, could Austin possibly pull this off? Because I'm thinking like, you know, he, is, he was like 25 then. I mean, the film took so long, he's turned 30. But, you know, um, like, and, you know, he looks, you know, 18. So I, was, I said, I'm going to do it anyway. So we did some testing and stuff, and he started to look like it. And it was still a debate right up to the end. And actually, Austin did it so well. I mean, he does the first half. He does the smiling bit. That's Austin, right? But then I went like, in a sort of epiphany moment, I said, with well, the guys and I were sitting around, we think like, you, traditionally you sort of, in credits, you see a bit of the real character. I thought, uh, what if we went there? And we got what we cut two years earlier, popped it in, and that's the way the movie ends. That's the way it is. Yeah. It is so touching um, and so heartfelt. It really such one of the most powerful endings uh, in, in any movie. It's really, really remarkable. I want to ask you just a personal question. You know, what, like, you've made so many movies, so many great movies, I should say. Um, you know, what did you learn about yourself in the process of making this film? Oh, well, this movie, I've had incredible adventures. I see filmmaking as kind of a, I hardly ever make them because it gets so wrapped up in the adventure of it. I'm from a very small country town with a few houses, which is weird. So Elvis is too, and I never realized that until I started doing these therapy sessions. So cool. I mean, like, yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? But this film was like no other because we did find Ost. And we got down to the day before we shoot and the scene where uh, Tom guides Elvis through the crowd and all the girls are kissing, you know, jumping on him. And um, Tom was over there. We're going to shoot that scene the next day. And my AD comes over and he says, um, I think Tom has that flu thing, you know. And I said, yeah. He said, what's it called? He said, it's called COVID, right? And I think you know what happened next because he was the most famous person in the world to get it. Suddenly hazmat suits and we were shut down and the film was over. I could not hold the cast together. And I think after about four weeks when we were in the clear, I went to Austin and I said, look, you better go back to L.A. Tom went back. He was suffering. Uh, because I'm not sure. We'll do the film maybe, but not now. And he said, I'm not leaving. I'm staying here. And I'm going to double down on the, on the kung fu and the vocals. And he just would not go. And so I rang Tom and said, look, Austin's not going to go. And Tom said, well, what about if we wait till February when it's all over? That was two years ago, by the way. I think three years. Anyway, I rang back. I said, look, I've, I've talked to the, you know, the scientists. It may not be over by February. And he went, all right, can you finish me by Christmas? He comes back down. And from the moment he walked on the set, it was the smoothest shoot I've ever done. And it came in on time and under budget, which, by the way, has never happened in my life before, right? So I learned one thing, and that was, I think, having turned 60, that I should get on and make films more because actually it really is a privilege. It's not a job. It's just a privilege. And probably, probably it's what I do. I'm, you know, I always think, well, I deal in ideas and stories but I don't really think of myself as that kind of this. I just 
ideas and stories. But I think I should... Yeah, what do I learn about myself? Is it probably... Probably it's just who I am and I probably enjoy it more than I want to admit because it's so hard. <laughs> well, I just want to say, Baz, we love uh, seeing you tell stories. Uh, you're amazing. Let's give Baz Larmer a, a round of applause. Congratulations on the movie. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com. <laughs>